math testing. That just makes me happy I'm not in school. Uh, <laughs> so I'd rather be here doing this with you than, uh, than taking math tests. Uh, you know, I was here teaching all the way back in uh, doing chapel with you all the way back in Mark chapter 1, right? And now here we are. Uh, this is kind of the whole point of everything that we've been doing in the gospel of Mark. This is the whole point of uh, that, that everything is, is leading to. Uh, in fact, just a, a quick quiz for you. What day of the week was it when Jesus was crucified? It's not, a, it's not a trick question. What is it? Friday. Okay, Friday, right? And we call it what? What Friday? Good Friday. Has that ever concerned anyone or made anyone think that was a little strange? I remember, as a, especially as a young man, I thought, why, why do we call it good? This is a, a terrible thing, right? I mean, literally the, the greatest crime ever committed in humanity, the most horrific, unjust murder, uh, the most innocent man being murdered in, in cold blood, and yet we celebrate this event, the event that we're going to read about this morning, because in, in this passage is recorded the greatest act of love in history. And so we're right to call it Good Friday, and we're right to celebrate it. And, and if you'll just allow me a, <clears throat> a couple of minutes here before we, we dive into Mark to kind of lay the groundwork. And you know these things, but God is, is perfect, right? God is good. And because he loves righteousness and he loves justice, that also means that he hates sin. That's a problem for us because we're sinners. Romans 3, 10 and 11 describes men and women by saying there is none righteous, not even what? One. There is none who understands. There is none who even seeks for God, it says. And the problem is that our sins have made a separation between us and God. And if we remain in our sinful state, then we risk having an eternal separation from God, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And, and nothing could be worse than being eternally separated from God and his goodness and his grace. But of course, that's where the central figure of Mark, the central figure of really all of scripture, steps into history. First Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So Christ came to, to mediate, to reconcile, to bring two parties who are at war together, to bridge the gap that our sins have created between us and a holy God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The, the crucifixion, that we'll read about today, that the death of Christ on the cross was to take our place, to take the judgment that we deserved. And, you know, I don't want this to be a spoiler alert, and I don't want to steal the thunder of whoever's coming to, to speak next, but uh, I don't know if you guys know this already. Christ didn't stay in the grave. This is where he's supposed to, like, gasp, you know, in a, in a shocked way, right? Christ is resurrected three days later, with the, uh, which gives us this glorious message of hope because Christ has proven that he is exactly who he said he was, exactly who the gospel of Mark has laid out for us that Christ is, and that he has victory and power over sin and death. And so this morning, we're going to be reminded of what it is that Christ endured for us. I want to just read Mark's account of the crucifixion. I know it's a, it's a little bit long to go. We're going to go from verses 16 to, to 41, and 
you can follow along if you like, but I just encourage you, just, just listen. Just listen and, and take it in. Imagine yourself there on that day and that time and that place. And when we've had a chance to read, then I want to come back and just focus on briefly the, the mockery and the shame that Christ endured for us, the, the pain and the humiliation that he took on for us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as I read this account, remember that the death of Christ is for you. Christ's death on our behalf makes forgiveness possible. It makes new life possible. It makes eternal life in heaven possible. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. <clears throat> The soldiers took him away into the place, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They began beating his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to a place, to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance. 
among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pause for just a second and pray. Father, what an incredible culmination of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Pray that it wouldn't be lost on us this morning, but that our hearts would be open to all that Christ has done for us. Father, for any who have not committed themselves to Christ or availed themselves of what Christ has done for us, that they would do that this morning. For those of us who know you, Father, that we would commit ourselves again to live lives of gratitude, seeking to honor Christ for all he has done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to focus for a, a moment here on the, the murder of Jesus, and I want to just draw your attention to a couple of the things that we see in this gospel account and, and, and draw from some of the others as well. These are some observations drawn from the book, The Murder of Jesus. Uh, first, notice the mocking that he endured. And Mark really highlights this. Roman soldiers who mock Jesus, they sarcastically call out, Hail, King of the Jews, except we know that Christ actually is a king. They dressed him in a scarlet robe. They put a crown of thorns on him. They, they give him a reed for a scepter. All of this meant to, to mock. All of this meant to make fun of Christ, to make fun of his claim to be a king. Not only that, but they taunt him. They spit on him. They slap him. In addition to all of that, humiliation and shame were kind of inherent parts of crucifixion. The, the condemned in a crucifixion was deliberately put on display. It was kind of the idea that we will mistreat and abuse and kill in a horrific way, and we will do it publicly, and this will be a deterrent. Everyone else will say, what did that guy do? I think I'll not do that. And this was a way in which Rome exercised its authority and its power over its people. Christ was made to carry his own cross as he's led through the streets. And again, to, to publicly humiliate him. He's taken to a place called Golgotha, which it says here is place of a skull. You can notice in verse 24, it says that he was stripped of his garments and the soldiers gambled for his tunic. Which, by the way, is the fulfillment of yet another prophecy in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22:18 speaks of this. All these insults are continuing to be hurled at him, and, and he's, he's hung between two guilty thieves. The most innocent man who ever lived hung between two thieves with this sign placed over his head that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Again, hung there kind of in a, in a mocking way. In fact, the Jews asked for it to be removed. We see in other gospel accounts because it, it bothered them. They said, he, he's not our king. And through all of this, through all the shame and humiliation, through all of the mocking, Christ was alone. Less than a week prior, you guys have seen this already, right? That the crowds had welcomed him with cheers of Hosanna, 
And then somewhere along the way, those cheers turned to shouts of crucify him. And even his loyal 12 disciples have left him and abandoned him at this point. Psalm 69 predicted this. Psalm 69, verses 19 and 20. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Not only the the shame of humiliation and, and the mocking, but also we know that Christ endured intense physical pain. Consider with me for just a moment the pain that we see pictured in this crucifixion account. I remember years ago in college taking a, uh, a speech communication class. And one of the last speeches of the year that we had to do was a historical speech. And my professor said, you can do your speech on anything you want, anything related to history. And I thought, okay, this is my big chance. I'm going to do a speech on the history of crucifixion. And then at the end of my speech, I can tell people about the crucifixion of Christ and have an opportunity to share the gospel, right? And so uh, in, in researching that, some of the things that I, well, one of the things that I found is that pain, the pain was kind of intentional, that, that Emperor Tiberius favored crucifixion because of the pain, and he thought an execution wasn't a proper punishment unless agony was inflicted with it. So this is kind of part of the the plan or part of the point. And so in the case of Christ, after being laid on the ground, and rather than being tied to the cross, as might have been normal, Christ was nailed through the wrists and feet, obviously causing intense pain. And then the cross is lifted up and dropped into a hole so that the full weight of the body of Christ is placed on his hands and feet. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen talks about his, his bones being out of joint. One author, a, a medical doctor, wrote of crucifixion and said the victim of crucifixion would experience waves of nausea, fever, intense thirst, constant cramps, an incessant, incessant throbbing pain from all parts of the body. Sleeplessness, hunger, dehydration, and worsening infection all took their toll on the victim's body and spirit as the process of crucifixion dragged on. We know that eventually most who were being crucified came to death as a result of suffocation. This is why we read that They would go and break the legs of those who were being crucified so they could no longer even push themselves up to be able to gather a breath. If you can imagine the weight of hanging on the cross, pressing in on you as you're not even able to breathe. Yet we also know that when they came to Christ, he was already dead and and they didn't break his bones because again, another prophecy is being fulfilled that none of his bones would be broken. And even with all of these terrible descriptions, the mockery and the shame and the humiliation and even the the pain of Christ, these things do not constitute 
the greatest suffering of our Lord. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And that grief is on display as we see in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not only had he been forsaken by his human companions, but now in this desperate, lonely hour, Christ, who knew no sin, was bearing our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus is enduring the suffering and the judgment of hell that we deserve. Remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Really strong language there in Isaiah 53. It's an incredible description of the death of Christ. Hundreds of years before it happened. The language says that, that he was pierced, he was crushed, crushed, he was chastened, he was scourged. Why? Well, please don't miss the words in Isaiah 53. It says, for, for our transgressions, for our iniquities for our well-being. All of this, on behalf of Christ, was to assure our salvation. And we're talking about substitution here. That when we read the description of Christ's death, we must constantly remember, remind ourselves that it was in our place. That Christ willingly climbed onto the cross in order to take what we deserved. 2 Corinthians says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God was pleased to crush him because of his great love for us and because he knows the end from the beginning. And the son is willing to sacrifice for us and to give his own body and to shed his own blood. Super important when we read this horrific description to understand that Christ endured this willingly. John chapter 10, verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. No one forced this on Christ. Christ could have resisted. Christ could have fought. Christ could have called a legion of angels. Christ could have used his divine power. Christ could have turned all of his enemies and all of the soldiers into grease spots on the ground in an instant, if that's what he wanted to do. But instead, he chose to suffer and die for us. And so the question, and I guess maybe the question as you go to, to groups to discuss these things is, now what? It's not a new question to you. I know you've heard this message of crucifixion. The, you've heard the message of the gospel hundreds of times in chapel and class and, and, and church. But the question is, what is required of us? What do we have to do? And you know that some people think that we can heal our relationship with God through our own efforts, right? Just, just be a good person, go to church, get baptized, keep the commandments. 
try not to kill anybody, you know, as you get to the end of your life, you know, say, okay, like this is, this is what a lot of people tell me. I used to do evangelism on campus uh, when I was doing ministry at UNL. And a lot of people say, hey, I never murdered anybody. Like that's like the main thing that they're going to ask when you get to heaven. Have you murdered anyone? No? Okay, good. Come on in, right? <laughs> that's not it. Because again, our sins make a separation between us and God. And even if there was a gigantic, you know, scale, one of the, you know what I'm talking about? One of those scales, the tippy scales that, you know, you put your, all your good stuff on one side and all your bad stuff on the other side. And even if you could somehow manage to do more good than bad in life, I'm not sure if any of us are doing really well at accomplishing that, but let's say we could. Are we really supposed to think that somehow our good deeds cancel out our sin? Is that how it works in justice? If you, uh, you know, kill three people, do you tell the judge, hey, uh, I did kill those three people, but also, probably didn't know this, I saved three people, right? I started the fire, killed the people, but then I ran in and I saved three people, so I'm back to zero, so I got to go. That's not how justice works, right? Our, our good deeds don't erase our sinful deeds, our offenses against a holy and perfect and righteous God who is angry at sin. And so only through the payment of Christ on our behalf can we be made right. But there is something that God requires of us. Christ did everything that needed to be done to provide for our salvation. And John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us this, that all who believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. And believing in Christ is no easy task. I really believe that it is more than just knowing and being able to rehearse the facts of the gospel. Now, I have a three-year-old granddaughter who can rehearse the facts of the gospel. And so the fact that you, know, you, you, you sit in Christian school and you go to church and youth group and all these things is, is terrific. And I'm sure many of you could come and give as good of a gospel presentation as I could or any of your teachers could. But it's not the question of whether you know and understand the facts. It's a question of whether you have believed and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not something to believe or to agree to lightly. Christ paid it all, but we must have a personal, life-changing faith in him as Savior and Lord. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The reality, guys, is that Christ wants all of you, or he wants nothing. I remember taking my youth group to camp one year, and of course I'm always you know, listening to what the speakers are saying, because we're going to discuss it in small groups afterward, and maybe I'm going to have to you know, clarify something, or they're going to have to you know, I'm going to have to answer some questions, whatever. And, and one of the speakers loudly and boldly said, Christ does not want to be part of your life. And I was like, whoa, what in the world? That doesn't sound right. But he quickly followed it up and he said, he wants to be the point of your life. The idea is that we don't accept Christ into our heart and say, okay, Jesus, I cleaned out a little closet for you. And uh, I want you to go into the closet. I'm going to give you the whole closet, right? But if you don't mind, shut the door behind you and try not to infect any other areas of my heart or life. Christ wants to give you a radical heart transplant 
to give you a new heart and a new life, to infuse you with the Holy Spirit so now that your entire purpose for life has been turned upside down, the goal and purpose of your life is to love and honor and worship and cherish him. Not to pay him back for what he's done because you could never do that, but to simply live a life of gratitude for all that we've read here that, that Christ has done for us. And if you give your life to him, and he fills you with his peace and purpose, you'll also receive forgiveness and joy and a home in heaven. I was uh, on the way here this morning when I got the news that a very dear friend of ours uh, lost her battle with ALS and uh, passed away this morning. And um, in the last couple of years as she's been suffering with this disease, knowing that it would eventually take her life, she has always referred to uh, her disease as her chariot. She calls ALS her blessed chariot that will take her home. It's a pretty incredible uh, perspective to have on suffering and death, isn't it? And it's the strangest mixture that I think only Christians can really understand when someone that we love that knows Christ dies, to have this incredible grief mixed with a, an incredible joy, to know that she is free from all the sufferings of this world and, and life, and that she's in glory, receiving her eternal, eternal reward. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As you go to groups, I just want to encourage you, just talk about if there's anything new here, if there's anything that maybe you're seeing for the first time or being reminded of, of, of what Christ has endured for us, but then also talk about what is the proper response. What is the proper response to all that Christ has done for us? And what does that look like? Not, a, not only in a, a moment-in-time decision to follow Christ, that's the foundation, but then as we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day as believers, what does the sacrifice of Christ mean to us, and how does it impact our life on a daily basis? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. What incredible love we see demonstrated, poured out here in Mark chapter 15 to realize that Christ endured all of this for, for our sake, for the joy set before him because he desired relationship with us to, to sacrifice because of his love for us and ultimately for your honor and your glory. And Father, I pray that you just draw us nearer to you through this passage this morning. Amen.